they're just interested in a free meal and a free cup of coffee that we just drink and eat in silence, I'm down for that too, okay? So just hit, just fill that out, drop it, and we will connect with you and prayerfully get to know you a little bit. Amen. And today we're, today we're coming from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, and I've titled this sermon this morning, To Be a Neighbor, To Be a Neighbor. Um, I want to say it has to have been, can everybody hear me Okay. Everything's good. There's been like five Sundays in a row where I've just gotten into the sermon and then like halfway through, you're like, we can't hear you. And I'm like, so what have you been nodding your head to this whole time? So I just want to make sure before I, I get into it, you've all heard me. A few years ago, we uh, did a sermon about this particular text. The cool thing about the lectionary that we use, can you turn me down just a little bit? Um, the cool thing about the, the lectionary that we use is that it takes you through the Bible, the gospel text, particularly over and over throughout the years. And so I preached on this text several times. And the last time I remember preaching on it in the old building, I showed a video of uh, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, the beginning, talking about neighbor, neighboring. And I also had a sweater on. And afterwards, people kept saying, did you wear that sweater to be like Mr. Rogers? And I think people were insulting me. They were saying my sweater was ugly. But... Um, <laughs> Because I didn't wear it to look like Mr. Rogers. It was winter, and I thought I was looking nice to preach. But I thought about doing that again this week, but I thought it would be a little bit on the nose. But today we'll be talking about what it means to be a good neighbor from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And the main idea I want us to take away from this passage, and it's the next slide here, is that eternal life is found through our loving our neighbors. Amen. Eternal life is found through loving our neighbors. Now, really quickly, what I don't want you guys to hear me say, because it's not what I'm saying, is that if you love your neighbor, you, you're saved. Okay? This is not works righteous. It's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that if we are indeed saved, if we are indeed children of God, then we will show, we will, we will inherently, we will, from the inside working out, we would be those who love God and love our neighbor well. Amen? Does that make sense? Okay. So eternal life is found through loving our neighbor. Of course, we can get into the question of what happens first, the chicken or the egg, and we've already explained that. But indeed, it's this. You don't have eternal life if you are not loving your neighbor. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. If you're not loving God and loving neighbor. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. I'm going to read it, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump in this morning. So... On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw, them, saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And this is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me, friends. Father, thank you so much for another Sunday that you've given us the gift of breath and life. You've brought us together to worship. You've kept us another week. God, you are indeed more merciful and kind than we deserve. Lord God, and even as you've been present with us as we've worshipped through song and and we've been here to hug on each other's necks and, and just, just love each other and greet each other kindly. I pray that you would indeed continue to be with us as I endeavor to preach what I believe you've given me. Lord, through the power of Holy Spirit, our God, would you please grant me, Holy Spirit, to preach and proclaim your word with clarity, with a great deal of clarity. Lord, with conviction. And Holy Spirit, would you touch every single heart and mind and life present that your word as proclaimed this morning would accomplish exactly what you have called it to do, sent it forth to do here for every person present, every person at home, I pray the same. That you would be with our children as they are learning, Holy Spirit, that you would grant them understanding in their heart and their mind, Lord God, that the word that those teachers so I pray, Lord, would be as good seed, Lord, sown in good soil, and when the time comes, you would reap a harvest 30, 60, even a hundredfold times that which was sown. This morning, Lord God, would you make us, help us to indeed be good neighbors, to indeed love others, even as we love ourselves, and to take it one step further, Father, even as you have loved us. Lord, forgive us for where we've fallen short in a myriad of ways, and particularly in this way. I give you the honor the glory and the praise for your mercy to give us another shot, Lord God, and to grant us even more clearly in what you desire of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so, friends, the story that we just read, it tells us that on one occasion, an expert in the law, he stood up to test Jesus. Now, this idea of one occasion, it just means that Luke doesn't give us clear context. He just says, hey, this, story, this happened. This happened. Jesus was out and about. And a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. And a couple, couple things about that, that situation there. The first thing is the, the, this idea of a lawyer. Now, a lawyer back in Jesus' day, in his Jewish culture, wasn't the same as lawyers we have today, right? A lawyer today, do we have any lawyers in the house? We do? Oh, shoot. I was hoping you wasn't here so that if I was wrong, nobody would know. But you, you correct me if I'm wrong there, James. From what I understand... A lawyer today, um, their primary job is to either defend someone or prosecute someone based on the law as written and interpreted, right? Typically. All right, good, good. All right. Back in this time, though, that wasn't the primary job of a lawyer or an expert in the law, as he's called here. The job of the lawyer back then was to interpret, or better yet, understand the Old Testament law for the people. 
okay, the Jewish law. That was, that was their job. So that, when, when you heard of a lawyer back then, it wasn't necessarily someone who was going to defend or prosecute in court, although there was the Jewish law court system, and that, that's another topic altogether. But that's what a lawyer does. And so it says that this man, expert in the law, expert in the Old Testament law, the Jewish religious law, he stood up to test Jesus. Now, this idea of test is not a good thing. It actually speaks of some level of, of vileness, some villainy in this man's heart, of impure desire that he had for Jesus. That word test is the same word for, for the word tempt. Okay, the same thing that, that Satan does to Jesus when he's in, in the wilderness. That's the kind of way that this man comes to Jesus. He, he's coming to trip him up. He's coming to test him. He's not, he doesn't have good desires. And so when this lawyer or expert in the law comes to test Jesus, he tests him with this question. He says, he says, so teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or what must I do to be saved? What must I do to truly be a member in the family of God, forgiven of sins, redeemed, going to heaven? What must I do? And Jesus, understanding this man to be the expert in the law, understanding the irony in him asking Jesus this question, he says, well, what do you read in the law? How do you read it? You're the expert. How do you read it? And he puts it back on to the lawyer. And so the lawyer responds correctly. He says, well, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, pretty much with all that you are. And then secondly, you love your neighbor as yourself. And after having answered correctly, Jesus tells the Lord, he says, okay, well, do this and you will live. Do this and you will inherit eternal life. You will be a member of the family of God. You would be saved. Go to heaven. Well, Luke tells us that hearing this answer, he's not satisfied. It prompted his desire to justify himself. Right? In other words, it prompted his desire to make sure that everyone there knew that he indeed was an inheritor of eternal life. Now, I want you to understand the problem with his desire to justify. Listen, friends, it's never a good idea to try and justify yourself to God. It's never a good idea to try and justify yourself in the face of God. And in his particular case, he was trying to justify himself in the face of the justifier. When you come before Jesus, don't try to justify yourself. Instead, Ask him for his justification. That's a big word. means a lot of different things. But essentially, don't come before Jesus trying to look good. Ask him to make you a little better. Amen? And so he tries to justify himself. And so he asks this question, which sounds profound, but it isn't understanding the desires of his heart. He says, well, then who is my neighbor? And to this answer, to this question, Jesus goes on to share one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you've heard the saying, a good Samaritan. That's where, this is where that saying comes from, this story that Jesus goes on to tell. And here's what's interesting about this story. In this story, Jesus does not give the answer to the question that this man posed. Because what was his question initially? What was it? Who is my neighbor? But the story that Jesus goes on to tell doesn't answer that question, and it, as is often the case with Jesus, right? Jesus does not give the answer requested, but he gives the answer that's needed. 
right? He doesn't answer the question posed. He answers the question that should have been asked in the first place. And so this story doesn't give the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Rather, it answers the question, how can I be a good neighbor? And so that's the story. That's what this story means when he goes on to tell. And so Jesus offers the answer. And he says this. He says that there's a man traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Okay. And what that tells us about the man is two things. One thing for sure, the other thing likely. The first thing that's for sure is this, that the man was a Jew. He was a Jewish man, right? Likely he was in Jerusalem to worship, and then he was heading back down. The reason why you say down from Jerusalem was because Jerusalem is an elevated city, and anytime you leave an elevated city, you're going down, right? So he's heading down from Jerusalem back to Jericho, which is likely where he lived, having worship, likely to offer sacrifices up there, whatever he did. And as he was on his way down, Jesus tells us that this man was happened upon. He was captured by rab- robbers. I was about to say rabbis, but that was by robbers. Okay? And Jesus tells us that these robbers, they stripped him. Right. Likely to take his clothes and anything that was valuable of him. They were robbing him, stealing from him. And then secondly, Jesus tells us that they beat him and they leave him naked and half dead. They beat him. Now, do I have any Caribbean folk in the building today? I got one. Any more? I got two. Me? Hey, he is. Hey, where you from? Cuba. There we go. Good. I'm Caribbean as well. My family's from Panama on one side, Guyana on the other side. So if you are Caribbean, if you know Caribbean people, you have Caribbean family members, you understand that um, it's one thing for someone to get beat, right, to get beat. That, that's severe enough. But from the Caribbean, what we say when someone really, really got, got it handed to them is, man, that person got some good blows, right? They gave that guy some blows, Right? Am I right? And so in the Greek, the language that this was originally written in, that's what it literally says. It doesn't say that he was just beat. It says that these robbers captured him and they laid blows upon him. So many blows, so significant and severe was the beating that it left him half alive, fighting for his life, likely bleeding and fighting for every breath of air that he could get. And as he lay there dying, bleeding, fighting for his life, Jesus tells us that three men walk by. They happen to walk by him at this time. Three men that were likely, well, at least two of them were coming from Jerusalem. The other man, not exactly sure where he was coming from. And these three men, the first man is a priest. Now, back in these days, priests served the purpose of standing in the gap between man and God. They actually stood in the gap to pray for the people of God. They stood in the gap to offer sacrifices for the people of God for the forgiveness of their sins so that they could maintain favor with the Lord God, Yahweh. Okay, their job was to offer care for the people of God. Right. As their representative before the Lord God. And so this man who was supposed to be the bastion, okay, of God's goodness to the people, he sees the man lying in the road naked and bleeding. And what does he do? He crosses the street and walks on by. There have been a lot of attempts to explain this as this man's religious piety, right? That he wanted to not touch any dead thing as the Old Testament law 
says that, that he, won't, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't help because it wasn't one of his family members. All of these different things. When the reality is what Jesus is trying to show is that this man, in all of his learnedness, in all of his piety, lacked the one thing that is necessary for eternal life. And what is that? Love for your neighbor. He had no love. And so he walked and crossed on the other side. Well, then Jesus said a second person walked by, and this man was a Levite. And a Levite was nothing other than an assistant to the priest. And this Levite, this, this, this priest assistant, he sees the man naked, bleeding, dying in the road, and he just follows suit with his, with his superior and crosses the road to the other side and leaves the man there to die. But then a third man walks by. And Jesus said that this man was a Samaritan. A few weeks I preached a sermon about the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews. Let's see if we can remember. How did Samaritans feel about Jews and vice versa? Terrible, racist, great one. What else? They hated each other. They hated each other. They didn't like each other. They didn't believe that the other was loved of God. And so this Samaritan, seeing his enemy lying in the road, dying and bleeding and fighting for his life, what does he do? He runs over the Samaritan and gives him some few more kicks, right? Adds a little more injury to his suffering. No. This Samaritan, this scum of the earth, as Jews would have called him, this Gentile dog, as the Jews called him, sees his enemy dying, bleeding, naked in the street, and he goes over to him. He takes pity on him, and he ultimately saves his life. And having told this story, Jesus looks at these, this expert in the law and the other Jews that were likely around who were probably dumbfounded that Jesus made this hated Samaritan the hero of the story and said, which one of these men proved to be a neighbor? And they said, the man who had mercy on him. You can imagine they probably said it in a whisper. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Would you have eternal life? Go and do likewise. I, um, before I get into this word about, about being a neighbor, uh, I've been doing a whole lot of reading on a lot of different things from a lot of different, a lot of different perspectives. And um, one of the things that has been pretty shocking, I've read this in a couple different resources, one of the things that's been pretty shocking is that when we talk about racist ideologies or um, the, the things that led to, to, to things like the Holocaust over in Germany and those things, um, you would assume that the teaching, the rhetoric, the ideologies were developed by some kind of like backwood country unlearned people, right? You would think that these people have to have just been ignorant morons to have come up with this stuff. And in my reading, it's been really crazy and sad to find out that a lot of these ideologies were developed by extremely brilliant, big-brained, learned people, Ivy League people, that gave concerted amounts of time and energy to coming up with very well-articulated and even convincing arguments about the inhumanity of people of color and about the reality that they should be treated inhumanely because of their inhumanity. Friends, what's even more shocking is that a lot of these people claim the name of Christ. 
And I have to ask myself the question, how did these incredibly learned people look into the Bible at stories like this and come to the conclusion that Jesus would be okay with their racism? With their robbing people because of the color of their skin or their culture, whatever, of their humanity. How could they come to this conclusion when Jesus is clearly saying, do away with that racism and all, because there is no room for it in the kingdom of heaven. How does it happen? Brothers and sisters, listen to this. Be careful that you do not make prejudice the foundation of your theology. Because if prejudice or anything else is at the foundation of your theology, you will find a way to justify anything you come up with. Anything you come up with. Make sure that Christ and what he shows us here in his word is the foundation of our theology. Amen? Now here, I want to say this. I know where I am, Redeemer. Let me tell you something. I have not been to a place where I've seen people of different races, cultures, nations, or wherever the gamut is, love each other as well as we do. So I don't think we have to deal with that too much. Amen? Amen? We better not have to deal with that here. All right? Amen? All right. All right. So I don't think that's something we deal with. it, don't, don't assume that we're not, we're not bent towards some kind of prejudice, okay? Maybe it's political prejudice you have here, right? Maybe it's socioeconomic prejudice, right? Maybe you hate rich people, right? Whatever it is, make sure that that thing is not at the foundation of your theology. Keep looking back here to shape that. Thing of him. And, and that part was free. That's not even in my notes. But let's go now to a word about neighbor. Okay? Um, in the Bible, in the Greek, uh, there actually is no such word for the word neighbor. Right? There is no word. What there actually is, what's translated into the word neighbor that we have in English is an adverb, right? Or a verb that describes a verb. So an adverb is like, um, if I said, he ran slow, slow would be the adverb describing ran or run, okay? So the adverb that is used to become neighbor in English is a word that means near. And what they do in the Greek is they take that word and they nominate it or they make it a noun so that it becomes one who is near or a near one. And that's what a neighbor is. Now, understanding this etymology, this foundation of the word neighbor, you may assume that what is foundational, what's primary to being a good neighbor is physical proximity, right? Meaning if you're going to be a good neighbor, you have to be physically in proximity to someone who is in need, to someone who needs your care and love. But brothers and sisters, here is where we get that wrong. You can be in proximity physically to people who are in need and never be a good neighbor to them. You could be physically near to someone in terms of proximity and never attain to the kind of nearness that Jesus is talking about in this passage. You see, brothers and sisters, because true nearness or true neighboring is not about physical proximity. It's about intentionality. True neighboring is about meaning with purpose, with intentionality to see, to find those who are in need and be a blessing to those who are in need. Wherever you, that means that we don't have to live, brothers and sisters, in Vine City or English Avenue to be a good neighbor to the residents here. Okay? You don't have to live in the Ukraine or in Africa or any of those places where people are experiencing great suffering to be a neighbor 
All you have to do is, once you are made aware of their need and their suffering, with intentionality, seek to be a neighbor to them by caring for them and loving them. Amen? You guys are really quiet. I want you to know there is coffee downstairs. And if I need to pause for a second for us all to get a cup, we'll do that. There's no more coffee? That's why you guys are... I see it. I see this Fabrice with the last cup of coffee right there. He took it. Dang. It's okay. It's all right. So physical proximity is not necessary to, ex- to exhibit the kind of nearness that Jesus called here, but intentionality, right? Seeking to love and care for those in need on purpose. And the, beauty, the beautiful thing about the Internet, friends, is you don't have to go far. Every single time I click on Facebook, there's need. There's some way we can be helpful. There's a bunch of other garbage on there, too, but there's need. When the Samaritan in this story, he teaches us three ways that we can be effectively near to people, truly loving our neighbor as ourself, as Jesus tells us to do here. And the first thing we can do is this. We, can, we need to see or notice our neighbor. Okay, see or notice your neighbor. See or notice the one in need. Now, when I say see or notice, I don't mean being just aware of their need. Okay, it starts with being aware of their need. You can't you can't know someone's need unless you're made aware of it. So that's that that's a given. But noticing or seeing in the way that Jesus calls us to neighbor requires two things. First, it requires discerning whether the need is indeed a need that requires our assistance. Okay, it requires that first. Secondly, it requires discerning how we can help in a way that is truly helpful and not harmful. Okay, because every kind of help is not good help. Okay, and I'm, I'm, I want to tell you this story real quickly. And the reason I'm telling this story is because I want to help illustrate for you, friends, that just because you're awesome and you help someone doesn't mean that you're actually doing good, right? Just because you think you're doing a great thing doesn't mean that it's automatically great. What makes it a great thing is it actually being a great thing, right? And so it's important that we're able to discern this. And so about five years ago, back in the old building, this is, I started full-time July um, five years ago. And that first month, there were a lot of, lot of uh, great stories to come out of that first month. The Lord was really trying to a- acclimate me to, to this work here. And... Um, that first month, I was on my way to the, to the building for work that morning. We would office in that, in that old building. And uh, Drew called me early, and he usually didn't call me that early unless something was up, so I knew something was up. And he said, hey, Leon, do you, um, uh, the, our neighbor from next door came this morning and said that uh, someone from our church stole his dog. Now, if you know anything about the old church and, and the two houses that were next door within feet of our, our church, um, those houses, people were always great to us, but they were centers for um, less than legal activity. Is that, that fair to say? They, they were centers for some, some unsavory activity, and, and um, we would always pray for them, and they were kind to us and kind to them. But on this one occasion, um, he was a little upset, the, the, the guy who, who ran those houses, and uh, and apparently he was, he was sure that someone from our church had stolen his dogs. And so Drew called me, as calm as he usually is, sometimes a little too calm. It doesn't fit the situation. This is one of those days. But he was like, hey, uh, the neighbor's pretty upset that someone stole his dogs. I assured him that nobody from the church would do that. But um, what do you think we should do? So 
as I pulled off to the side of the road to figure out whether I needed to actually come into the building uh, this morning, uh, I said, well, uh, Drew, uh, was anybody, you know, in the building recently? He said, well, the Jobs for Life course was happening last night, the men's course. And I said, well, call the leader of the course and see if he can ask around if anyone knows what happened to the dogs, because this guy sounds mad, and it sounds like he knows his dogs were stolen. And there was a lot of activity going up and down the street where there's always someone to see what's going on. And so he, uh, he called the leader, and when I had actually gotten to work that morning, he was waiting for the leader to call back after having uh, asked some questions. But while I was there and before he called back, our neighbor came into the building, and he was very upset, but also very calm. You know the kind of calmness that makes you feel very uneasy when you know somebody's upset? That's the kind of calm he was. And uh, he walked in, and he just kind of said, you know, where's my dogs, you know, and not, not slang. He literally meant his dogs. Beautiful. He had some beautiful purebred pit bull puppies he had just bought. And, um, and uh, he said, uh, where are my dogs? And Drew, you know, said, uh, man, I, I, I'm calling. I'm waiting to hear back. Um, I, I, but I still don't think, you know, any, anybody from the church stole your dogs. And very calmly and eerily, the man said, listen, if my dogs are not back by tonight, there's going to be trouble on this block. And so with that, I began to pack my stuff up. And, uh, and because for me, when he said it, just sounded like quitting time to me. Um, time to go. And, and I said, Drew, you know, you know, hopefully they, they get back to you, brother. All right. Well, sure enough, surely, and I, I, didn't leave, I didn't leave my boy, although I did tell him if, if they don't have an answer for us, we do need to leave. But he called back and he said, oddly enough, one of the men who had come, the champions who they would trap, they don't live in the neighborhood, they come to the neighborhood to help serve, helping the men with job preparedness skills. Um, he had indeed taken the dogs. And what happened was he saw the two pit bulls chained to a post across the street from the houses and just assumed that they were abandoned. And so took it upon himself to rescue these puppies. What's more is that by the time we got a hold of him, the man was already in Athens and was on his way with the dogs to somewhere in the Carolinas. And so I told Drew, I said, listen, you can tell him or I can tell him. And he's not going to like it if I tell him. But I don't care what he has to do. Make sure those dogs are back by tonight or I will give our neighbor his name, phone number, address, everything else he needs. Okay. But make sure those dogs are back. And praise be unto God, those dogs did come back that night. Because I was not kidding. I was not joking. But friends, I tell this story as an illustration of, he of helping that is actually harmful. Okay? Without any understanding of our neighbors or our neighbors' context or people who live here, this man just assumed that what he did was helpful just because it made sense to him. He thought that he saw an opportunity to help when in reality it was an opportunity to get poor Drew in trouble. Not me because, you know, your boy was out of there. I was out of there. But he saw he, what he thought was helpful was actually going to cause a lot more harm and trouble than good. Brothers and sisters, noticing a need in the way this Samaritan does means that we discern if the need is truly a need. And then that we can fill the need and discerning whether our help is truly helpful or harmful. Amen. A great book 
that can help you with this, a book that uh, Jeremy Taylor gave me a long while back, is called um, When Helping Hurts. If you ever read it by uh, Steve Colbert, is it? What she said. Great book to help as you seek to be a neighbor and making sure that you're offering the kind of help that is indeed helpful and not harmful. Well, the second thing we do, friends, in being a good neighbor is this. We act. First you see, you notice, you discern, and then you act. And make sure that when you act, you act to heal. When the Samaritan finds this man laying on the side of the road, dying and bleeding, he does some things that you'll miss if, you don't, if you're not looking at the context, right? He pours oil onto the wounds. And what oil served in this day, they served as kind of um, an, 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 we call analgesic. Uh, Jillian, what's that word? Say it for me. An, analgesic, kind of numb the pain. Analgesic. We just call it that then. All right, analgesic. He poured some analgesics on that thing. All right? And... What it does is, is to soothe the pain. So he pours oils on the wound. And then he pours wine on the wound. Can you, can you guess what wine would do? Disinfect it, right? The alcohol. So he disinfects it. And then he binds the wounds with bandages, which would, would keep them clean as they heal, right? His primary goal in meeting this, this man on the road was to offer healing care. And what this teaches us, brothers and sisters, is that as we seek to neighbor, our primary objective is to heal, not preach. Okay? Your primary objective in being a good neighbor is to heal and not preach. Yes, we preach the good news, brothers and sisters. It is necessary. But if you begin and end with preaching, James tells us that you've done nothing at all. Because James says, what good is it, brothers and sisters, after my preaching, after giving you all this theological truth, is if you are still naked and still hungry, and I say, hey, friend, go, be clothed and be fed, even though I have the means to clothe you and feed you. It is nothing. It is futility. Brothers and sisters, in being a good neighbor, our primary objective is to be agents of healing, okay? And not just messengers with truth. No amount of truth or wisdom without care will ever fall the way it should. Jesus' primary goal in coming to earth and dying for us was to offer us healing of our greatest ailment, our sin and our separation from our Father. No amount of his preaching would have mattered unless we received this healing. Jesus healed us in the ways that we so desperately needed. And when we act, when we seek to be a good neighbor, we must offer healing to our neighbors. And the last thing is this. We care abundantly. Care abundantly. If we're going to be a good neighbor, we have to care abundantly. My favorite part of this entire story is what the the, uh, Samaritan does towards the end of it. It says that he goes... He takes the man, puts him on his beast, which clearly shows the man was incapacitated, he couldn't walk, and he takes him to an inn. An inn is something like a, a hotel, right? Um, this is not the same thing as where Jesus was born. They call it, and they said there was no inn. That's a whole other story. This is an actual inn. This is a hotel. He takes him, and not only does he put him there so that he can rest and heal, he actually pays the innkeeper so that the innkeeper would take care of him, would tend to him, 
as he was healing. Okay, that's that's significant enough. The crazy thing of this story is that he looks at the innkeeper and says, when I come back. This man has done so much and he is already making plans to come back. And check on this man. Not even that. He says, and when I come back, guess what? I will pay you for any extra charges he incurred. Do you understand what he did? He assured that that innkeeper was going to give this man the absolute best care he could possibly give because he incentivized him to do so. Went above and beyond. Brothers and sisters, when we seek to care for our neighbor, we can't be just doing just enough. Jesus calls us to go above and beyond. Jesus calls us to go above and beyond. I want to close with this story. You guys know uh, my wife, she was not here this morning. She's home with the kids uh, getting had a cold. But, um, you know, she's from Philadelphia. If you know anything about people from Philly, is anybody from Philly here? No. Pretty much if you live anywhere east of the center of Pennsylvania, you say you're from Philadelphia. That's, they're, just, they're just insane up there. But people in Philadelphia believe that Philadelphia is the greatest place on the planet. I had one guy from Philadelphia actually tell me that I know it's not the greatest place on the planet, but it still is. This is them, right? And Philadelphia also has this lie they tell people about it just because of the name. They say that it's a city of brotherly love. It's not. It's not. Every time my brother and I have gone to Philadelphia, every time we joke about the fact that we run into some kind of discord happening in the airport. Before we could even get into the city good, we're just in the airport. You run into somebody cussing somebody out, somebody getting in some kind of argument or fight. There's always some. There's very little brotherly love in or around that city, okay, just so you know. And on one occasion, I w- we were going, and um, I'm not a big peanut guy, but you know on the plane they give you peanuts, right? That's like the standard airplane food. And so I took the peanuts, and I just thought I'd save it, because when, when we get off the plane, there's always homeless people hovering around and in, in the airport looking for shelter. And so I got my peanuts, and um, as I was walking, before we got to baggage claim, sure enough, there was a woman there who was clearly homeless, bracing up against the big win- windows there in the corridor. And so I walked up to her, and I, and I just said, you know, um, ma'am, could you use these peanuts? And without even looking at me, she just yelled out, kiss my, you know what, right? And my brother died laughing, of course. He thought it was hilarious. And, um, and I just put the peanuts back in my pocket and said, no worries, ma'am. You have a good day. God bless you. And when I thought of that story and, and the conversation that my brother had later on, um, I realized that in those situations, we would be, we're tempted to think, well, that woman should have been, she should have been happy with any help that was offered to her, right? How ungrateful can she be? She should, have, she should have accepted any good thing that someone would do for her. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, that Jesus doesn't want us to love our neighbors with the mindset that anything we offer is enough. Okay? The Samaritan in this story shows us that loving our neighbor means that we do as much good as we can do for someone and not just enough, right? And listen, I'm not talking about giving to your neighbor until you're no longer feeling guilty, right? Because that's often what we, we just try to outgive our guilt, right? Right? Just serve until you're no longer 
guilty, or even worse than that, to serve from your guilt. Hey, why are you going and give water to the homeless today? Man, I was drinking a bottle of water yesterday, man, and I felt guilty that they ain't got no water, you know. Keep your water, all right? Don't give from guilt, okay? Because what God calls us to is joyful giving, joyful neighboring. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. Guilty neighboring will inevitably lead to hurtful helping and burnout, okay? Don't think that people can't tell that you're giving out of guilt, okay? I'm talking about giving. This scripture is telling us to give from a place of grace where with joy you give as much as you reasonably can instead of as little as you begrudgingly can. Amen? You guys are getting more quiet as the sermon goes on. Let joy be your guide in loving your neighbor. Let joy be your guide in giving and serving and not guilt. Now, I understand that it may take some time for us to get to that place, and that's fine. But be praying for the Lord to grant you grace, grant you joy in giving. Because that guilt giving just doesn't last. And it's not nearly as impactful as you would think it is. Listen, you know why we give out of guilt? Why we feel guilty and still give anyway? It's because we assume that, ah, well, whatever I do will be helpful, right? Oh, well, I guess I would. God don't need that. Give from joy. Give, you know why? Because freely you have been given. Freely you have been given. And as I close, Jeremy, if you come up, brother. Our neighboring is to be motivated and modeled after what I've just said. The generosity of our God. The generosity of our God who lavishes his grace and his goodness on us in abundance. Listen, friends. God's goodness to us is always more than enough. God's mercy to us is always more than enough. His forgiveness, his kindness, his provision, whatever it is, it's always more than enough. I like when my, the pastor of the church where I became a Christian, that he would call, he would call, he would say, God is a more than enough God. And that's facts. And God calls us to be more than enough neighbors more than enough believers. Friends, eternal life is bound up in loving our neighbors. And loving our neighbors requires that we notice our neighbors, that we offer healing care to our neighbors, and that we offer our care and love in abundance, not begrudgingly. And so as we turn our hearts and our minds to communion this morning, We're acknowledging just what we've said. That the grace, the forgiveness, the love that is shown us through our Lord Jesus Christ is abundant. It is more than enough. I want to say something I don't say every single Sunday, but maybe someone is here. Maybe that's why I sense the need to say this. But there are times, there are days, there are weeks that are worse than others. And where 
you may find that you struggled a little more that week, whatever the week. Maybe you struggled a little more than usual with sin, with a struggle of some kind, doing what you know you shouldn't be doing, not doing what you know you should have been doing, and you come this morning with a great deal of heaviness. And I just want to say to you, remind you, or tell you for the first time that the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ that is demonstrated in this table, his broken body for us, his bloodshed, is more than enough. It's more than what you will need even this morning. If you're here this morning and that's you, I want you to know that you cannot out God's grace. You cannot exhaust God's mercy. And so this morning when we take of this communion, his body broken, his blood shed, I want you to keep in mind that what we are ingesting here, mysteriously, Jesus being present in these elements, we are ingesting grace, abundant grace, amazing grace, more than enough grace. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for eternal life, I want you to know that you are welcome to take of this communion with us. If this is your first time ever to this morning, you say, wow, I believe that, that Jesus, that's who I need. Then I want you to take this this morning as a confession of that faith this morning. If indeed you put your faith in him. If you've been believing for a while and you say, hey, man, I'm, I'm one of those people. I've messed up. I need that grace. Know that it's here for you this morning. And so, before we take communion, we always take time to silently confess sin. Now, this, this confession of sin is also an, an acknowledgement of the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ, in his broken body and his blood shed, is forgiving us. And so right now, I want us all to bow our head and close our eyes and in silence. And I want us to take some time to confess sin. To not only acknowledge to God what we've done, but also to acknowledge that he knows and still loves and still forgives this morning.